you were blessed as I was by Ryan's sermons on the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ as prophet and his coming to us as a great high priest. And I know that most of you expected today's sermon to be about the coming of Jesus as our king. I confess that I, would, I too was looking forward to that. I don't know what Ryan intends to do with the sermon that he had prepared for today, but I hope to hear it soon. Maybe we'll get two sermons next Lord's Day. But in the providence of God, Pastor Ryan has been dealing with that bug that's been going around, and so it has fallen to me to preach to you the word this morning. Had I the time, I would have prepared an Advent sermon for you, but I did not have that time. So you are going to get a sermon that I've been preparing for the last six months. What I want to share with you this morning is a sermon about goals. The official title to today, of today's sermon is Good and Godly Goals. It is taken almost primarily from Philippians chapter 3, and I think we'll just read that entire passage this morning. So if you would, please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. That's Philippians chapter 3. And before we begin, let me just say that I don't intend to give you a verse-by-verse -verse exposition of this passage but instead to make some general observations that we can see throughout the chapter, even ideas that we can find in the rest of the epistle. A good old-fashioned Reformed subtitle for this sermon might be General Observations on the Priorities of the Apostle Paul from Philippians chapter 3 with reference to the entire epistle. I'll wait while you write that down. But before we read, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Philippians chapter 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Sorry, I lost my face. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him even in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already made perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. 
Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Please be seated. I would imagine that some of you groaned inwardly when you heard the title of today's sermon. Not just the longer title. There could be a number of reasons for that, but I suspect that some of you have to deal with goals at work. Your evaluations may be tied to goals, which perhaps you and your immediate supervisor have set, or perhaps the corporation handed those down to you, and these goals may seem arbitrary and unrealistic. Others of you who are not goal setters say, may say, goals? My goal is simply to survive. I understand, as a public school teacher, I've had those days when my only goal was to survive the chaos. I've also rolled my eyes with you when my supervisors have started talking about goals. In the education community, goals have been a part of the lingo for many years. They have at different times been objectives, learning objectives, outcomes, outcome-based education, and learning targets. In fact, there was a stretch of time in my teaching career when a good teacher was simply defined as one who had a learning target for the day's lesson posted on the classroom wall. For another period of time, SMART goals were all in fashion. I know that some of you know about SMART goals. SMART goals, for those of you who don't know, are goals that are specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, and time-bound. This tended to reduce teaching to activities that could generate some data, and it didn't acknowledge the fact that some very good goals have results that cannot be measured. These goals don't take into account the nuances that make for teaching young human beings. But I have to admit that I find goals to be very useful. As a teacher, I write lesson plans every week, and when I do, I start with the objectives I wish to accomplish during that week. In difficult situations when you're wondering what to do, it is helpful to ask the question, what are my objectives here? What is the main thing that I'm trying to accomplish? Usually the plan falls into place once we've identified the goals. The point as a, that's the point as a teacher where I can relax once I've identified the goals and the plan develops from that. This is true in the classroom, it's true in the workplace, it's true at home. 
And it's true in our personal lives as well. But goal setting isn't a particularly Christian idea, other than the fact that it's true and useful. Goals can be good or goals can be bad. Goals, they can be wicked or they can be godly. So what should a Christian's goals be? I think we would all agree that the Christian's goals should be fundamentally different and from the unbeliever's goals. But I have to ask, is that the case with us? Are our goals foundationally different from those who don't trust Christ? Francis Schaeffer once divined the basic aspirations of people today, including evangelicals, as a material affluence and enough personal peace to enjoy it. P.D. James, the mystery writer, notes that people's typical goals are security, comfort, and pleasure. Are these are the things that you are working for. Dennis Johnson also notes that our passions may be academic achievement, career success, health and fitness, a fulfilling marriage, respectful and accomplished children, financial stability, popularity, or community recognition. Johnson goes on to note that these may be good goals, at least they're not bad ones, we should desire the success of our children. We need houses and clothing. It is a bit bizarre if we don't want people to accept us. But the problem with these goals is that they are not big enough. They are not good enough to be our supreme goal, nor are they the goals for which we are primarily designed. Nor are they particularly Christian goals. These goals are rooted in the physical world and they are not very different from the goals of our nice but unbelieving neighbors. It is possible for us to live by a set of goals that take no account of spiritual realities. It is possible for us to live by a set of goals that take no account of eternity, God, or our Heavenly Father's desires and purposes. I suspect that some in the Christian community, really, when it boils right down to it, aren't really interested in pursuing the kingdom of God, but are more interested in saving the United States from liberalism and wokeism. I think Paul would have to say about the people whose goals are only rooted in this world that their God is their belly and their glory is their shame with minds set on earthly things. Philippians 3.19 Brothers and sisters, we need to ask ourselves, are our goals any different than the goals of the average middle-class American? Are our goals eternal and lasting? Are our passions those for which we have been designed? Are our goals subject to the discipline of the Word? Let's ask the question again. What are good and godly goals? Well, in the Scriptures, we have a number of examples. We have a number of examples we can look to, but perhaps none better than the Apostle Paul. In the epistle to the Philippians, Paul gives us many insights into what drives him. In particular, in Philippians 3, we have a thread that we can pull which shows us what good and godly goals ought to be, especially those long-term foundational ones. So let's talk for a minute about Paul the goal-setter. Some of you might say, the Apostle Paul, really? He's our example? I'm not an apostle. Maybe you read uh, Mr. Horton's book, 
Dr. Horton's book, uh, Ordinary. And you know that most of us are not called to be apostles or even preachers. Most of us are just ordinary Christians. And, And it's true, I suspect that there are no apostles in this room. But we have biblical warrant and biblical reasons for following Paul's example. Paul wants us to follow him. In Philippians 3.17, he states, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. And this is his pattern in Philippians. He uses examples both good and bad. He uses other believers. He uses himself. He even uses Christ to exemplify the principles of his letter. And this should be our pattern, should it not? If we are to be obedient to Scripture, we need to follow Paul as he follows Christ. 1 Corinthians 11.1 We should follow the example of all those who live good and godly lives according to the Scriptures. While we may not have the calling and gifts of Paul, there are principles from Paul's life and Paul's goals that can be useful to us no matter what our calling or our gifts. And we should note that Paul was always a goal setter. Before his conversion, Paul was driven by zealousness for the traditions of his people. He was motivated by a desire for a righteousness that came from keeping the law. I think it's worthy to note that God created the Apostle Paul to be a driven person. And he gives us all distinct personalities. He gives us all a distinct usefulness in the church. But the traits that God has has given us have been corrupted by sin. And as Christians, we need to examine ourselves in the light of God's word and subject those personality traits to that word. This is what happened with the Apostle Paul. He encountered Christ on the road to Damascus. He was converted, and he began the lifelong process of conforming his will and his desires to the will of God. We read this in Acts chapter 9. Paul also came to see the folly and the wickedness of many of his life, life's goals, and his, and his goals changed. But Paul continued throughout his life to be driz, driven, and for this we can be thankful. Paul did nothing without good and godly goals in mind. In 1 Corinthians 9, 6, he writes, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. You feel like someone who's beating the air? I know that I often do. So Paul is testimony to the usefulness of setting good and godly goals. Sinclair Ferguson, who wrote the study that we uh, did in our small group uh, at our home, he notes that Paul seemed to have three types of goals. Paul had specific short-term goals. We find some of these in Scripture He told the Romans that his goal was to stay with them, to be refreshed by them on his way to Spain. In a vision, he received the goal to travel to Macedonia to start the first church in Europe. Finding no synagogue in Philippi, the major city in Macedonia, he purposed to find a gathering of Jews by the river. Paul also had long-term goals connected with his calling. In Colossians 1.28, he tells us, Him, Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom 
that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So one of his apostolic goals was the maturity of every believer. And just as a side note to those of us who are parents, we ought to make this our goal as well. As we pursue the accomplishments and education of our children, we ought to consider their spiritual lives and spiritual maturity as well. But in addition to specific short-term goals and long-term apostolic goals, Dr. Ferguson notes that the apostle had lifelong foundational personal goals as, as well. These are some of the goals that he shared with the Philippians, and it seems to me that his apostolic goals and his specific short-term go- goals flowed from these long-term goals. You could create a little pyramid of goal-setting according to the, uh, the Apostle Paul. One is founded upon the other. These long-term goals were the ones that enabled him to instruct us how to rejoice even in our suffering. These are the goals that enabled him to stay focused in the chaos and uncertainty and the suffering that he endured. It's worth taking the time to talk about the context of Philippians and Paul's situation as he wrote the letter. Paul wrote, almost certainly, from Rome. It is likely that as he dictated this letter to the Philippians, he was chained to a Roman soldier, likely a member of the Praetorian Guard, Caesar's personal bodyguard. We know that these men heard the gospel. It seems that some of them became believers. It is also likely, knowing soldiers, that some of them weren't very nice. It seems likely, too, that Paul was chained to these men 24-7. And at the writing of the letter, it is likely that Paul had been such a prisoner for about three years. I imagine that all of us would find this situation difficult. I imagine for one of Paul's energy and mission focus, it was particularly difficult. It's useful to ask the question, how could the apostle endure his imprisonment with joy, even instructing us how to live a life of joy and peace, which is one of the themes of the letter, enduring the situation and suffering in which he found himself? Well, at least part of the answer is in the apostle's long-term personal goals. To be sure, he had the Word and he had the Holy Spirit, but it was his focus on the most important things that helped him to endure the suffering of his difficult life. And following Paul's example, we can do so as well. So Paul's goals. It seems that we can note three things about Paul's long-term goals. Two of them have to do with what those goals were. One of them has to do with what the goals were rooted in. First of all, Paul's goals were focused on a person. Secondly, Paul's goals were totally aspirational. And lastly, Paul's goals were rooted in reality. So first of all, Paul's goals were centered on a person, the person of Jesus Christ. Indeed, Christ was Paul's obsession. In the four chapters of the letter to the Philippians, according to my unscientific study, Paul references Jesus Christ no more than 50 times. For example, he tells the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord. He refers to the Philippians as saints in Christ Jesus. And he refers to himself and Timothy as servants of Christ Jesus. Perhaps the most well-known verse in Philippians is, "For For to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. 
In Acts 9, we read the account of Paul's blinding encounter with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. He was confronted with Christ, converted, and shown mercy and grace. And he never got over it. He never got enough of Christ. His passion, his goal, was to know Christ, to have fellowship with Christ. In Philippians 3, 7 through 11, Paul writes, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He goes on to say that he counts everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Note that Paul refers to knowing Christ as a being of surpassing worth. Here's the context of that passage. In Philippians 3, Paul is trying to inoculate the Philippian church against the heresy of the Judaizers. This is the same heresy that plagued the church at Galatia and is the focus of the letter to the Galatians and the focus of uh, a sermon series that Ryan most recently uh, ended. Well, I guess we had Lamentations after that, didn't we? So you're familiar with this heresy. So his goal is to show that there is worse than no advantage to keeping the law for righteousness' sake. And Paul, to do this, gives his resume in Judaism Paul had been quite the accomplished young Jewish man. If Forbes magazine had been a thing in Jerusalem in the first century, he would have most certainly been on the list of 30 under 30 at some point in his young life. His reputation had been unparalleled. His prospects in the Jewish community had been limitless. But he willingly gave it all up for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Knowing Christ was worth infinitely more than his reputation. In fact, he became aware that all he was striving for was worse than useless. It was worse than garbage. In fact, everything he thought was a credit in his favor was actually a debit. And he came to see that knowing Christ was of surpassing worth. Let's talk about that word for a moment. Surpassing, what does that mean? It means that in Paul's mind, there was nothing Paul could think of that is worth more than knowing Christ. Another word for the idea that Paul is developing in this passage of, another word for knowing Christ, is fellowship with Christ. Fellowship with Christ was the long-term personal goal of the Apostle Paul. No other goal compared, not even forgiveness of sin, as important as that is. Fellowship with Christ is what drove Paul. It is what enabled him to endure suffering and hardship with joy. What did that mean for Paul? Well, one pastor has defined it this way. Fellowship means the act of intimate communion, sharing and participating in activities of mutual interest and delight. This is what drove Paul. He loved being with other believers, he loved participating in service alongside fellow workers and fellow soldiers, but he sought to live with Christ, to work alongside Christ, conscious always of his presence. The Philippians had experienced this with Paul at the church's founding. Do you remember what Paul and Silas did as they were chained together in the Philippian jail? Do you remember? In Acts 16.25, we read this. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. I can imagine one nudge the other. You awake? 
yeah, I've got these chains. You want to pray? Might as well sing too. In fact, in that jail, Paul was fellowshipping with both Silas and with Christ. We know that chained to that soldier in Rome, Paul devoted himself to prayer and probably the same praise. It was fellowship with Christ that gave meaning and purpose to Paul's suffering and hardship and threat of death. Paul thought this way. Jesus had suffered. I'm suffering for his sake. I may die, but the Lord has died for me. Paul knew that he was, if he was to suffer in the faith and die in the faith, he would do so in fellowship with Christ in that suffering and in that death. Even more importantly, he would have fellowship with him in his resurrection and glorification. And this fellowship is something that we can have too. In Revelation, in fact, it's what we have to look forward to. In Revelation 3.20, we read these words. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. This passage is often used for evangelistic purposes, but I would point out that these words were written by Christ to Christians, lukewarm Christians at a lukewarm church in Laodicea. Lukewarm might be an adjective that would describe us as well. We halfway want Christ, but we halfway want the world. We need to hear what Jesus says to us. In essence, he says, give yourself to me, Seek me, seek that gold refined by fire that is fellowship with Christ. Seek fellowship with me. This is hard for us. We do live in two kingdoms at once. But this is faithfulness and joy, to find our joy in Christ and not in the things of this world. This is what the song, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken, that old hymn about the church refers to as lasting joys and solid treasures. Fellowship with Christ is eternally, eternally satisfying and it is the chief treasure of heaven. Revelation 21, 2 through 3 we read, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. In Revelation 21:22, we read, And I saw no temple in the city, for the, its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The point is this, in the new heavens and the new earth, the chief blessing will be that we will live in and have perfect fellowship with God and his son. And the fellowship will be sweeter than the fellowship that Adam had with God in the garden. This is the chief treasure of heaven. Some of you might ask, well, what's so special about Jesus? Well, let's look at this from the perspective of the Apostle Paul. When Paul first met Jesus, he was breathing threats and murder against the church. He was on his way to Damascus to imprison the disciples there. His goal was to destroy God's church. If anyone deserved God's wrath, it was the Apostle Paul. 
That's why he referred to himself as the chief of sinners in 1 Timothy. Instead, Paul was shown mercy and grace. He was given spiritual life, a glorious purpose, and a place in the kingdom of God. This is Jesus. Jesus is also God's perfect gift. We are conditioned, probably even created, to be drawn to those things that are perfect and beautiful. This too is Jesus. He is perfect in holiness, perfect in purity, perfect in wisdom, perfect in love. He's also perfect in compassion. In Matthew's Gospel, we read, we read this of our Lord. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name Gentiles will hope. O bruised reed, O smoldering wick. This is Jesus. He is gentleness, grace, love, and hope. He is justice and mercy meeting. That's what's so special about Jesus. And he calls all those who believe in him brothers and friends. Seek fellowship with him. So brothers and sisters, we have to ask, is this our highest, best, long-term goal? Is Christ and fellowship with him our passion? Is this our solid joy and lasting treasure? It ought to be. Fellowship with Christ is the path to lasting joy and peace. It is ballast for our souls and an anchor in the storm. This is Paul's long-term goal, to know Christ, to be found in him, and to share in his sufferings. And this ought to be ours, too. Now, more briefly, two more things about Paul's goals. So secondly, let's note that Paul's goals were totally aspirational. In Philippians 3.10 and the following verses, Paul writes his second goal, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. So his first goal is to know Christ. Secondly, the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already made perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Now, I will acknowledge that this passage is difficult to understand. It might seem that Paul's goal is to obtain the resurrection from the dead based on his own performance. But we know that this cannot be true. Note that Paul says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. It's not Paul's performance that leads to his resurrection, but his position in Christ. Also instructive is John 6.40. In this passage, Jesus tells us, And this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And he goes on to add, And I will raise him up on the last day. So the basis for Paul's resurrection is faith in the Son of God not in anything that he does. And Paul also might confuse us a bit when he says that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That's Philippians 3.11. I think that what Paul is getting at here is a similar idea that we find in that very familiar verse, Philippians 1.21. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. 
It's important to remember that Paul is waiting for a verdict from Caesar. The verdict will either lead to his release or to his execution. His release will allow him to return to his apostolic work and labors. His release will make it possible to labor among his beloved Philippians. His death will place him in the presence of Christ, which is far better, Philippians 1.23. Paul believes that he will probably be released, but he doesn't know. But whichever occurs, it is his desire to remain in the faith and work that out, whatever the will of God is for his life or death. He is trusting in the work of Christ and intends to persevere in the faith no matter what may come. In Philippians 3.16, he alludes to this, only let us hold fast to what we have obtained. Paul does not know how his life will end. That is his reference to by any means possible, but his goal is the same, to obtain the resurrection from the dead. In this passage, Paul is actually looking forward to what coincides with the resurrection. This is why he asserts, not that I already have obtained this, or am already made perfect. Paul recognizes that he is united to Christ in faith, and because Christ has risen, he has been perfected. He's talking about sanctification. Sanctification, as R.C. Sproul teaches us, comes in two parts. Definitively, we have been sanctified. This is sometimes referred to as positional sanctification. But sanctification is also progressive and transformative. As we heard last Sunday in our, in our passage that, that Ryan uh, opened up to us, we read this, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Notice that. He has perfected us, but we are being sanctified. Paul's goal is to become practically what he is positionally. Sin's power over him has been broken, and he wants God's ongoing work of grace to sanctify him. His goal is nothing short of perfection. Some of you might say, well, why worry about it? You can't achieve perfection in this life. And your perfection in the next is going to happen anyway. But this, brothers and sisters, is not the Christian way of thinking. Obedient Christians want to be pleasing to the Lord. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He also goes on in Matthew 5.48 to say, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So this is the second lifetime goal of the Apostle Paul. He wants to be perfect. But that leads us to the final point that we will make about Paul's goal setting. Thirdly, Paul's goal setting is rooted in reality. Paul has a pastor's heart. He knows that some of his readers will despair at this second goal. They struggle with their sins and with the development of their Christian graces. The goal of perfection seems cruel and unrealistic. So once again, he uses himself as an example. He writes, Not that I have already obtained this or been made perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Philippians 3, 12 through 14. I think that this gives the lie to smart goals. Some of the best goals that we can have are impossible to achieve. 
Paul's goal setting is rooted in the reality that though his desire to be perfect is a good and godly one, it will not be achieved this side of the resurrection. He points that out that this is how mature Christians think. Now, more briefly, Paul's goals were also rooted in reality in other ways. Paul's goals were rooted in the reality of his humanity as other, in other ways as well. As Sinclair Ferguson points out, Paul seems to hold his specific short-term goals loosely. God had revealed much to the Apostle Paul, but he had not revealed to Paul what the future would be. As we have noted before, Paul had no certainty as to what the outcome of his trial before Caesar would be. His letter to the Philippians is sprinkled with contingencies. I hope, he writes, to send Timothy to you as soon as I know how it will go with me. Philippians 2, 19-23. We too must make specific short-term goals, but we too must hold these goals loosely. Like Paul, we don't know what God's will for our lives and service might prove to be. Another way that Paul's goals were rooted in reality is that they were rooted in his circumstances. And he did so with an awareness of the sovereignty and providence of God. Paul was desirous, as we have seen, to resume his normal apostolic work. He wanted, if it was according to to God's will, to be released from his imprisonment so that he might strengthen the churches. We know that he wanted to travel to Spain with the goal of establishing new churches in that important part of the Roman Empire. But he also knew that his imprisonment and death would serve the gospel as well. His imprisonment, he was well aware, was actually the unforeseen fulfillment of God's purpose for his life. At his conversion, listen to what Jesus said of the Apostle Paul. Jesus said this to Ananias. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. That's Acts 9, 15 through 16. I suspect that when Paul was arrested in Jerusalem, Acts 21, he had no idea that this would lead him to proclaim the gospel before governors and kings and emperors. But also in his captivity, Paul labored to fulfill his calling. He used his gifts to achieve his apostolic goals. Chained to a Roman soldier, he continued to proclaim the gospel. He labored to build the church through his emissaries and his letters, and he devoted himself to prayer. He did so with joy and with thanksgiving, as we read in the epistle to the Philippians. He was able to do so because of his long term personal goals. In every circumstance, he sought to remain in Christ, to grow in his fellowship with him. He labored to be perfect in every circumstance. Brothers and sisters, I know that some of you are chained too. Your chains are not physical, but you are chained nonetheless. So follow the example of the Apostle Paul. Seek the fellowship of Christ in your suffering. Acknowledge his presence and his purpose in your circumstances, whatever those may be, and seek perfection with maturity. Brothers and sisters, I confess that I find all of this to be very convicting. If you had asked me what my goals were before I encountered these principles, I'm not sure what I would have answered. I might have given you a number like, well, I would like to work five more years until I retire. 
So when you're asked what your long-term goals might be, what would your answer be? Would you name a number of years to retirement? Would you list the things you'd like to possess? Would you describe the comfortable situations in which you'd like to find yourself? Or could we say together, I want to know Christ. I want to be found in Him. I want to be like Him, even if that means fellowship in His sufferings, even if it means fellowship with His death. Would we say together that we want to become in our lives what we are positionally in Christ? Or are we earthly, with earthly goals? Are we what James called double-minded people? James 1.8. And finally, do we have a set of goals that will give us lasting joy and solid treasure? Let's pray. Father, you have given us in your Son eternal life and eternal treasures. You have promised that you will be our God and that you will dwell with us and that we will have fellowship with you and with the Lamb, Jesus Christ. Father, help us to delight in these things. Help us to see these as our chiefest treasure. Help us to desire communion with you and with your Son above all other things. Father, we ask that you would work in us, that you would perfect us, Help us to long for the fellowship with you and give us the kind of joy that is not dependent on our circumstances. We ask that you help us to be mature in the faith, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.